to the virtual EU Commute and Happy New Year. I'm Andreas Marazis. And I'm Rashid Gabdulhakov. And together we continue keeping you company through the monthly chat in the Yurt. Here we discuss Europe Central Asia developments. What events are unfolding in Central Asia that Europeans should understand? But also what developments in Europe are of specific relevance to Central Asia? Together we discuss societal trends, political developments, and economic turns while assessing the past and looking ahead at what the future may unfold. A Chat in the Yurt is a podcast from the EUCAM program of the Center for European Security Studies in the Netherlands. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and sign up to EUCAM News on our website. In today's first podcast discussion for 2023, uh, we focus on Uzbekistan, and we place uh, the country in the spotlight together with our guests. And we'll talk about domestic, regional, and foreign policy issues. Our Yurt hosts today two UCAM associate researchers, Fabien Bosuit, who is an assistant professor at the Center for EU Studies of the Department of Political Science at Ghent University in Belgium, and Nafisa Hassanova, who is the head of research at the Global Media Registry. Fabien and Nafisa, a warm welcome to our UCAM Yurt. Thank Hello, thanks for having me. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for inviting us to the yurt. So it's really a pleasure to have you all in our online uh, yurt. So I would like to start our today's uh, podcast discussion uh, with domestic developments in Uzbekistan. So heavy snow swept uh, through Central Asia recently, as you probably know. And uh, in the country, there were reports over electricity blackouts, shortages of natural gas and car fuel. Why is the energy crisis a continuous problem in the country? And let's start with you, Nafisa. <laughs> Thank you. I wish I knew why. I mean, mm -hmm. we all ask ourselves, why is it? Well, we have some ideas. It mostly leads to certain corruption um, because energy shortage is definitely not the reason. Uh, I think I've seen a number of 53 billion cubic meters being uh, produced in terms of gas in Uzbekistan last year. Um, but clearly, um, not all of it, or not even the sufficient amount of it, is directed towards the domestic needs. I can tell you from uh, basically my own experience. I, I live in Brussels, by the way. I have a um, decent amount of heating. It's 20 degrees in my apartment all the time. But my mom was with me um, over this winter, and she's been reporting to me every day how cold it has been in Samarkand and in Tashkent, because I have uh, brothers that live in Tashkent and in Samarkand. And from what I know is that um, I would say this energy crisis, I mean, this has been taking place for at least a decade. Every year, people wonder about how are we going to endure this winter? How would we, you know, heat the places? My mom kept on saying, well, the fact that this hit now Tashkent yeah. was the kind of a breaking point because Tashkent was relatively untouched by um, energy crises in the past. They've had, my brother and his family have always had decent amount of uh, energy in the apartment, uh, hot water, uh, all was fine. Whereas in villages, of course, people could um, 
could find alternative ways of heating their um, the, their spaces. In Tashkent, lots of people actually depend on central heating. Afisa, I can absolutely relate to this, as you know, I have relatives also both in Tashkent and in, you know, let's say in the periphery. Uh, but do you feel like, yeah, so this this year, maybe it's worth explaining, uh, Tashkent, the capital, which usually is, uh, you know, comprised of a privileged residence, yeah, there is Tashkent and then there is the rest of Uzbekistan. I even you know, conditionally yeah. use this term. I come from Namangan myself, from the Fergana Valley and growing up, I was always told that I'm from the periphery, even though, even yeah. though of course, I didn't like that. But do you feel like the fact that Tashkent was affected has had any impact, actually, on any action uh, towards, I don't know, <laughs> trying to provide secu- energy security to the people? Or did it lead to some mass awakening of people in the capital towards or the realities of the countries? But what was actually the impact of this? I think there's numerous factors here. Mm-hmm. It's not just the fact that Tashkent now um, got the, you know, um, got the energy cuts uh, just like everyone else. That had an impact, of course, because people people were um, uh, furious about it. I think the impact of the impact of internet and the fact that people could post about it, uh, protest about it, and and ridicule the government mm-hmm. for things that have not been there that should that should be provided, has kind of. Um, empowered people probably to to be to express their anger and furiousness more and i was even yeah i was quite surprised to also find out that the um the mayor of tashkent was uh fired uh as a result of this mm-hmm. um yeah yeah that was a big uh, big showcase step of course <laughs> so, uh, to punish uh the mayor by uh yeah forcing him to resign or by dismissing him. And yeah, we we're we all mm-hmm. curious to see how his future will unfold. But you mentioned that there are critical voices that, you know, people are speaking up. Do you get the sense um, of how people are communicating their discontent, their disenchantment? Because in the past, I mean, this is not new. Yeah? Every year, winter hits us suddenly, quote unquote, then unexpectedly, yeah, for some reason, year after year, there is this energy catastrophes, energy collapses. And in the past, some bloggers, yeah, yes, let's use this term, even though it's quite vague and all-encompassing, uh, have reported on corruption, on gas shortages, and some of them consequently have been uh, repressed and even arrested. Like there are some loud uh, cases, of course, such as Atabek Satari, for instance. Maybe we can talk a little bit about yeah, these channels of voices and the position of bloggers in this and how does this all play out. With On the one hand, you want to express your disenchantment with the state and on the other hand, is it still dangerous to do so in the quote-unquote new Uzbekistan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think the the space in Uzbekistan has changed that space where people can actually talk. I mean, I left Uzbekistan in uh, 2005 uh, to study in Germany, and I remember that the atmosphere was completely different. People just didn't talk about their problems out loud in public or even within the family. Um, They would just self-censor. now, however, and I think it has it has even um, changed even more during COVID or 
because of COVID. Just an example would be uh, my mom. She uh, she's a mathematician. She teaches at school. She used to teach at school. She was asked to um, to teach online, and of course, she she would have absolutely no idea how to do it. I gave her my iPad, and I taught her how to actually work on different programs, how to access YouTube, and. I was I was impressed to see. I mean, I, I traveled back. I travel back and forth multiple times a year. I was impressed to see during COVID how pretty much everyone was on Instagram, on YouTube, uh, business owners, um, bloggers. The, the term blogger is so interesting as well, and I don't quite always understand what they mean by it. It it's it's um it's it's a trendy thing to be a blogger lots of people come up to me and say oh you should be a blogger you will be mm-hmm. successful and i'm like yeah so in many ways people now consume a lot of the a lot of information through uh, what they uh, call as bloggers basically mm-hmm. uh, these could be and at times of course that um, i mean i'm at the cautious caution side because um, bloggers are not journalists and they don't adhere to certain ethical norms and um, they of course produce their own opinions and um, their own positions sometimes as, as fact and if I can, if I can ju- jump in there was just a case now where you know two bloggers were uh, fined uh, because of their message that they were sending, basically they were teaching women how to behave when they leave house, how to behave outside. And these were very patriarchal you know, narratives, of course, and they were fined for that because uh, what they were preaching, so to speak, went against the principles of um, gender equality uh, that Uzbekistan uh, evidently mm-hmm. adheres to, according to, at least to the uh, police and the involved parties in, in this case. Yeah, that is that is a surprise to me to to hear that. But indeed, I mean, there's so many voices now that you can hear. Of course, there's a lot of noise among that um, and also an impression that things are getting only worse. Um, I guess this is the part through which this Uzbek society has gone, has to go through, I mean, and um, learn to um identify probably voices that uh sound legitimate sound like um providing measured information or information that is checked through and um no absolutely and i think it's a learning process for everyone if i can jump in here i think it's also a learning process for the government of how to deal with citizen journalists with active voices with bloggers because there is usually a tendency to, you know, cover everything with with one paint, right? If something happens like the above mentioned, you know, anti-female narratives, then there is an urge to mark all bloggers as fundamentally threatening to, to society, even though, of course, we need to be more nuanced and more granulated in this approach. And speaking of mothers, actually, while you were talking about my mom, I was thinking about mine and how she looks at all these you know, YouTube videos because there is a huge niche of charity-focused online activism or blogging, however we want to call it, where people go and help each other out and report on this 
for the sake of you know including more people, more participants, and they don't hide that. Sometimes they monetize their channels, but then they use this money for to to do even more charity products. Yeah, yeah. These are the kind of a very positive aspects of it, I guess, and 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 it's very welcome. I mean, it's in, it inspires people um, having such small examples of um, small or big examples of people, for instance, investing the money that they have gathered to go to umrah for i don't know uh, building something in their local community uh i would my I, i noticed also that my mom consumes a lot of islamic uh content on um on youtube through uh bloggers women or men talking about how to live their lives and how to basically do things and those kind of examples i find are very um inspiring and when i see that i think wow this is this is the, there's a rich space in uzbekistan where people have all sorts of opinions and ideas the the danger is not to not to get into the extremes of things of course and um and to allow all sorts of different voices to be um to be heard and the problem in uzbekistan potentially is that this uh that bloggers are put on an equal path or equal um stage as journalists and then possibly could be banned i mean it's um if you have a tiktok account and you are uh, expressing your opinion are you are you a journalist if if you're clearly um indicating that this is your opinion you you prefer to i don't know dress up a certain way before you leave home um i guess it's it's a it's a question where i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want the government to have the regul uh, to, to want to regulate uh things well, let's let's try and zoom out a little bit and uh, change uh, subject uh, and look uh, the role of uzbekistan in certain uh, uh, recent developments from a regional point of view Now, we witnessed towards the end of uh, last year the signing of an agreement on the demarcation of the Kazakh-Uzbek border and uh, more recently on January 6th, the signing by Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan of a roadmap uh, for construction of the Kambar Ata uh, one hydropower plant. Can we uh, expect, uh, given these recent developments, uh, less tense year uh, compared to 2022 with a shift towards regional cooperation rather than competition. Fabienne, can I ask you to you know, share your thoughts about this? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I've not been really following these developments um, in depth, but I think it's just a sign that, um, especially since Mr. Uh, came to power, that um, we've really seen some, um, some steps in the direction of, of more regional cooperation in Central Asia. Um, of course, from time to time, there are still um, some major conflicts between uh, countries. Um, but overall, um, I think in terms of regional cooperation, um, there has been a huge improvement um, since Mirzayev came to power. Um, and I think these, these latest uh, agreements are just um, a sign of this. And so I think in that regards, we can be positive and we can be hopeful that also in the coming years, um, there will be more space for, for cooperation uh, in Central Asia, despite, as I said, also the 
the uh, conflicts that still um, are there between some of the countries. And one one aspect with the border demarcation that uh, I'm concerned with um, these bilateral agreements that are signed and that are presented as success stories they are to me are somewhat dangerous because when we are not involving people on the ground in discussions in contestations so we view discussions contestations you know these disagreements as problematic even though they're a natural path towards sustainable border demarcation in my view because when it's done at the official level and is presented as a success story it's actually uh, a bit dangerous because people on the ground it's not guaranteed that they will accept it so long-term on the ground conflicts might continue you know back in the day when i was living in central asia in kyrgyzstan and in uzbekistan i traveled quite a bit to border regions in the Batken region on the Kyrgyz side and, you know, from the Fergana region on the Uzbek side to Enclave Soch. And people living there, they view people from the capital as, as such distant characters who are only there to betray them. So anything that is signed by people in suits in the capitals is never perceived as something genuinely benefiting people on the ground. And so I think that this parallel, you know, this approach must be fundamentally changed in our outlook that the discussions, the involvement of locals and disagreements, contestations, they should not be viewed as problematic, but rather as a natural part of the process that will make the demarcation, in fact, more sustainable. I'd like to, if I may, add, this makes me uh, think, or this reminds me of the fact that um, in Central Asia, the governments actually have such a great distrust towards their people. I mean, they it's not even just distrust, it's probably also um, looking down at them a little bit as well, because they don't know things, and um, but they don't know things because there's not enough uh, work done with the public to inform them about their rights and about things that uh, are important to their livelihoods. And I think it it's a it's a two-way street. There's a mutual distrust, like you mentioned, um, the local people on the border areas distrust people in suits. And I think it's uh, it's a major problem. That's why they don't want to involve anyone in discussions. But at the state level, and I would like to hear anyone's uh, opinion about that, if, uh, for example, two quite important in terms of like uh, size, uh, economically and also in terms of population in the case of Uzbekistan, agree at the state level to uh, the demarcation of their border together, would that create a you know positive precedent in the region of like peacefully resolving this issue? Even though, and I take uh, what you say uh, about uh, excluding the locals from this process mm-hmm. as a good example of you know good neighboring uh, relations for countries, for example, in the region such as Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Okay, what I notice is that when they present the success stories, it's usually the easy part of the border that is continuously presented as success. 60% of the border, 70% of the border have been demarcated. Sure, but those the remaining 30, 40 are the most, you know, the, the, the most difficult ones. And um, so we have to be really careful about uh, assessing the success stories as well. They are the ones where the trouble is because of the maze of the borderline that goes through not only um, 
towns and villages, but households. Yeah, it would separate family and force one half of the family living in one country and the other in on the other side, requiring border crossing to go into the living room. Yeah. I agree. And I would like to add a little bit, going back to the question of um, if this year would be um, presenting us with less tension and more cooperation, if we take into account the fact that the, uh, the, the leadership in Uzbekistan, at least, is, is more open to, at the moment, at least, to making money, to um, they, they will say yes to many projects, I guess, that would create jobs, that would um, uh, invite investments. And from that perspective, yes, but then there are external circumstances that we don't, I guess, uh, we can't predict. So it's uh, it's yet to be seen uh, how this year will unfold. Yeah, maybe we shift gears again and now discuss, um, you know, intra-regional relations, but more uh, how are well, Central Asian states in general and Uzbekistan in particular maneuvering now between the, let's say, collective West and uh, Russia and other act actors, given the ongoing war of Russia against Ukraine and the sanctions and also all these different interdependencies of Uzbekistan with Russia and on the other hand, Uzbekistan wanting and being open to making you know, to be engaging in business with actors beyond the region. Yeah, well, foreign policy. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of changes, I guess, uh, in Uzbekistan uh, in particular. With, But I, I, I definitely saw a lot of changes in Kazakhstan as well, but that was a little bit uh, related to something, to something else, maybe not the war necessarily, but the January events of last year. Um, in Uzbekistan, I was surprised yet yeah, to see that the that the foreign minister resigned after basically uh, openly um speaking about the positions of Uzbekistan vis-a-vis -vis the war in Ukraine i was quite proud of that actually moment i thought wow well done this is courageous and brave but then he was dismissed yeah abdulaziz kamilov was of course one of the well seasoned diplomats yeah he took office back actually in 1994 and was uh, foreign minister several times right and then Norov uh, also, I mean, Norov just became, uh, I mean, he wasn't acting, I guess, uh, prime minister, uh, not prime minister, foreign minister uh, since the dismissal of the um, Abdulazizov. But now in end of December, uh, another foreign minister was appointed and... Yeah, Bakhtar yeah. Saidov is now acting minister. Things are in flux, I guess. Things are changing. But now with winter, the way the, the the energy crisis has also resulted in a lot of changes and uh, or dismissals, not only in Tashkent, but uh, a lot of ministerial positions. And honestly, I don't really know uh, how to comment on these and what to say about it. I mean, given given these developments and uh, you know new phases in uh, in the government uh, uh, of Uzbekistan and the developments in the region, what role, Fabiano, would you see the EU have in engaging with the authorities in Uzbekistan, but also going beyond 
the state uh, uh, level uh, engagement with people on the ground? Mm, okay. Um, well, maybe just just coming back also to to the previous question. Um, I think personally that um, uh, we should not um, overestimate the the impact of the war on uh, the relations uh, between Uzbekistan and Russia. Um, I think uh, what we're seeing here is that ultimately um, Uzbekistan has to be careful in how they engage with Russia and they are not um, as free as, as they would like to. Um, and I guess maybe these, um, yeah, dismissal of, of, of the foreign affairs minister would, would also show this. Um, of course, at the same time, um, Uzbekistan just continues to balance its relations with various regional powers and then international powers. Um, this is not new. I mean, Uzbekistan has been doing that for a very long time. Um, and I think from that point of view, um, the Russia's war against Ukraine has not fundamentally changed this. Um, but then when it comes to the EU, um, the EU had sort of things that there is this um, power vacuum in Central Asia at the moment, um, and that the EU has to be there on time to, to sort of um, yeah, help fill this power vacuum. Um, but I would think that the EU might be disappointed um, and that ultimately the EU has to acknowledge that, okay, well, while Central Asia is not a priority for the EU, the EU is also not a priority for the Central Asian countries. Um, and so I think from that point of view, again, I don't think that, um, this is my personal view, that uh, Russia's war against Ukraine um, has really um, brought a fundamental shift. I mean, of course, there have been changes um, uh, that's undeniable, and, and it's really, uh, in a way, also quite um um yeah historic to to witness these changes um but i think ultimately for the eu also there's not that much changing and also when it comes to the eu's leverage to promote um reforms in the region there also i don't think anything um major uh or anything uh particular is to be expected um in that regard but to come back to your question andreas um, so if we um, focus on the question, what role the EU has uh, in engaging with the authorities in Uzbekistan? Um, well, since uh, Mirzo Yoyev came to power, it's clear that the EU has gradually intensified its relations with the Uzbek authorities. Um, as soon as uh, the new president had declared its ambitious reform agenda, uh, the EU saw this really as an opportunity to re-engage with Uzbekistan and to support uh, the government in its ambitious plans to reform the country. We can clearly see this also in the increase in the budget allocations of the EU for Uzbekistan. So um, the budget allocations uh, from the period 2014 to 2020 were more than double of the budget allocations of the EU for Uzbekistan in the previous period. So already that immediately show, shows us um, that the EU was quite serious about re-engaging with Uzbekistan um, and about um, intensifying its cooperation with the country. Um, and I think it's fair to say that Compared to the Karimov era, relations between the EU and Uzbekistan, they have never been so constructive. 
Um, and then recently, there have been two major milestones to uh, the testify of this. First one concerns the GSP plus status that Uzbekistan was awarded from the EU in 2021. And then the second one concerns the signing of the enhanced partnership and cooperation agreement last year. So in, in 2021, the EU granted this GSP plus status to Uzbekistan within the EU's generalized system of preferences. Um, so, well, why is this relevant? Um, well, for Uzbekistan, it's relevant because it offers Uzbekistan additional opportunities to increase its exports to the EU, um, as the scheme lifts tariffs on a large number of important Uzbek export uh, goods. Um, but for the EU, I mean, this GSP plus system is not just a trade uh, scheme, it's also an instrument to promote human rights and governance. How? Well, by joining the EU's GSP plus scheme, Uzbekistan basically commits itself to implementing 27 core international conventions on human rights and labor rights, as well as on environmental and climate protection and good governance. And the GSP regulation allows the EU to monitor the obligations of Uzbekistan under this GSP plus scheme. And if Uzbekistan fails to meet its obligations, it may risk losing um, its preferential access to the EU's market, market or part of this preferential access to the EU's market. Then when it comes to the enhanced partnership and cooperation agreements, um, I would say that the signing of this new agreement is definitely an important milestone in the EU's relations with the Uzbek authorities. Um, the negotiations took three years, well, a little bit more than three years, which I think um, it's not that long. And it does show uh, the extent to which both the EU and Uzbekistan really uh, want to move, move forward with cooperation. Um, well, what is this? Well, what is so special about this new agreement? Um, well, it is more extensive than, than the current PCA. So at the moment, we still have the, the partnership and cooperation agreement in place that was signed in the 1990s, which completely outdated. So of course, it was high time that there was going to be a new agreement. Um, but the fact that it only took three years to negotiate, I think, does show that on both sides, there was really um, a willingness and a commitment to move ahead with, with cooperation. Um, to some extent, it covers um, yeah, the same provisions like the current uh, partnership and cooperation agreement. The main difference is that, of course, it's it's um, completely updated. And it also covers new areas which were not covered um, under the current uh, agreements. But there's no doubt that once it is enforced, this new agreement would really um, yeah, be a very important basis for, for the EU to intensify its cooperations with, with Uzbekistan. Um, I think another maybe may minor uh, milestone that is worth mentioning is the fact that the EU and, and Uzbekistan co-organized the Samarkand EU Central Asia Connectivity Conference last November. Um, I think it's really the first time ever that EU and Uzbekistan organized something of that kind um, together, which again shows that there's really this joint commitment to um, increase cooperation. Um, 
for Uzbekistan, this was also, of course, very symbolic in, to the extent that yeah, they can show off with such an important event. Uh, we can, of course, question to what extent there will be concrete outcomes coming out of this connectivity conference. But still, I mean, we should not underestimate the symbolic value that um, organizing such a, an important conference together has. There is a strong commitment uh, indeed uh, on, uh, you know, enhancing cooperation with Uzbekistan from both sides. But there is also from the EU side, and it was also uh, uh, stated uh, multiple times in the uh, latest uh, EU Central Asia strategy, on strengthening societal resilience or resilience in general of the region and uh, the Central Asian states. And I wanted to ask not only you, Fabien, but also I would like also to hear the thoughts of Rashid and Nafisa as well on that. Uh, can the EU strengthen societal resilience in Uzbekistan? Meaning in the sense that does the EU have an understanding of the local realities and the role of local structures? And I'm asking you specifically, uh, Fabien, because you did a research focusing on uh, uh, Mahalas in Uzbekistan. And since we are lucky enough to have two Uzbeks in our uh, podcast uh, today, I would also like to hear their thoughts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, well, uh, so when it comes to um, the EU's role in strengthening societal resilience in Uzbekistan, um, yeah, I've become very skeptical in that regard, um, not only based on this research I did on the Mahalas in Uzbekistan, but also just from um, having studied um, EU relations with uh, Central Asia, including Uzbekistan for such a long time, I have, I'd say, uh, become quite skeptical over time. Um, well, it is true that boosting societal resilience in Central Asia, including in Uzbekistan, it's one of the key priorities of the EU strategy for Central Asia. So the, the latest one that was launched in 2019, um, and there the EU acknowledges um, that uh, strengthening resilience in Central Asia involves granting the local society more ownership, um, given that positive change can only be homegrown. Um, so this is, of course, I would say a very promising um, point of view. Uh, but then, unfortunately, and this has also been shown um, from research by prominent scholars, um, it seems that the EU's understanding of resilience and also its its approach to boosting resi resilience, it sort of, well, it falls short of, of really empowering the local societies um, and of strengthening governance at a societal level from the bottom up. Now, why does it fall short uh, of doing that? Well, this is mainly uh, due to this rather neoliberal and, and very Eurocentric fixation that the EU has on sort of, yeah, sharing Western norms through ready-made solutions, which then the local societies sort of just have to adopt uh, as if, yeah, this would magically work in their society. Um, you could say that I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps oversimplifying things, um, but still, I think in reality, if you really study um, the EU's approach uh, to, to boosting resilience, this is effectively what you would find. Um, and, and this can really be observed also in how the EU promotes governance and how it tries to boost societal resilience uh, in, in Uzbekistan, um, and also in how it envisions the role of civil society in Uzbekistan. 
So just like in, in other countries and other regions, um, the EU's approach to civil society support and governance promotion um, in, in Uzbekistan, it's, it's really neoliberal in nature. Uh, it proceeds in a very technocratic and almost managerial manner. Um, but then also um, the, the substance of what the EU is promoting in terms of governance, promotion and, and civil society support um, it's also very much embedded in this neoliberal paradigm of state civil society markets um, and also in this Western ideological concept of liberal democracy. So all of that is very much um, yeah, Western originating uh, with very little um, yeah, roots in, in local society. Um, and so it's also not surprising then to see that in, in the EU's engagement with the local societal actors in Uzbekistan, the EU continues to rely mostly on these Western style organizations. Um, these are, of course, organizations that have professional systems and processes needed for accessing and managing EU funding, but also they, they better fit the EU's Western understanding of civil society. Now, um, what I've been arguing, and also what some other scholars have been arguing, is that if the EU is really serious about strengthening societal resilience in Uzbekistan, um, as it proclaims in its new strategy for Central Asia, then it would have to radically change its approach to, to resilience. Um, so it, it, the EU really would have to admit that resilience building, it cannot be molded externally um, and that instead it really has to start internally, it has to start from the communities themselves. And they can perfectly draw on their existing resources and their existing knowledge, um, including also their understanding of what a good life entails. Um, and so external assistance by the EU, this should only be provided as and when deemed necessary by the local communities. Um, and I think the extent to which local forms and practices of self-organization and self-reliance in Uzbekistan act in function of resilience building, they has been they have this has been very clearly illustrated during the COVID-19 pandemic. And earlier on uh, in today's episode episode, we also heard um, these examples of bloggers that are actually um, rallying um, also to to um, to rally funding for uh, specific uh, solidarity initiatives. Again, this shows that within the societal fabric of a country like um, Uzbekistan, uh, there is a lot of potential there um, of very um, resilient um, self-organization and self-reliance forms, which we here in, in, in Western Europe actually don't have or have to much lesser extent. Uh, but especially as we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, civil society and, and community-based initiatives and self-help groups in Uzbekistan, they have been crucial in addressing direct implications of the pandemic, especially in the areas where the government fell short. Um, and so this is why really we can see that there is this, this huge potential there um, that um, the EU should acknowledge, you know, that because it is really crucial in terms of um, the resilience of these local societies. Well, uh, just maybe on on uh, resilience, I would say Central Asian societies are pretty resilient because they've undergone uh, such. Um, they 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 went through the 90s and 2000s where they didn't have any uh, support from the government and had to um, rely on their own 
um, basically means through family, community uh, links. And then in that sense, I would, yeah, I would say that if, depending on how you understand resilience, that Central Asian societies are quite resilient. But then if you understand it as a society at large, as a, as a community of, I don't know, nation, then I guess I would more think about institutional resilience there, different kinds of uh, institutions. And that's where I guess the work needs to be done or studies need to be carried out. I have a few points, maybe not related to this question, but the previous questions that uh, came to my mind about foreign policy in particular. I was pretty also, I forgot about it, um, that I was pretty impressed uh, by the way that President Putin was um, greeted in uh, Samarkand during the summit, uh, Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization Summit, I think it was in September, October last year, September, and that the president didn't greet him that it was uh, uh, his second, uh, I don't remember, prime minister or someone who greeted Putin. And that was a clear sign. It was seen as a clear sign as uh, he's not the main important guy because Chinese president was greeted uh, personally by the president of Uzbekistan. But the Uzbek side explained it as a protocol issue, yeah, because uh, China came with a state visit, whereas Putin came for a regional dialogue visit. That's why the protocol huh. required different people who are greeting them at the airport. That okay. was the official explanation. I the see. explanation was demanded. <laughs> I, I missed that explanation, but the impression was made. I mean, and and that was impressing my memory as, as something. Uh, but I guess, yeah, make uh, makes sense if they have uh, explained that. And uh, yeah, there's one other thing that I would like to mention, maybe, is that when I look at news coming uh, from Uzbekistan and I see this uh, the centerpiece, the president talking and all the other men around him, like ministers looking on the ground and this one man telling off all the other men in the room, this looks very f familiar and similar to uh, Karimov era, to the Soviet era. In that sense, I find it... Um, yeah, the names have changed. Some things are changing, but there are still lots, lots more to change, I guess. And Absolutely. in particular, the fact that the, in a way, maybe it was a, it wasn't a bad decision to dismiss the um, the mayor of Tashkent. But I guess when um, these kind of positions are appointees or appointed by the president then clearly they don't have much legitimacy in the face, and I mean, in, in, in front of the nation and the public in general. That's why the president can be can look like I'm the, the only legitimate power holder here and all of you depend on me. And um, yeah, those kind of things, I would like to see them change. I would like to see uh, mayors of cities in or regions in uh, Uzbekistan be elected by people. Here, here, Nafisa, definitely agree with that. And, uh, you know, the moment that uh, the mayor of Tashkent was dismissed, I thought, well, we've seen this before. So 
many times it's the same toolkit yeah everyone at the regional level everyone at the in the hierarchy everyone is fundamentally corrupt aside for the one person at the top of the pyramid that has you know the purest uh vision and uh you know is a genius in all sectors but if talking about um resilience our an analogy came to mind you know when they're building this infrastructure in cities and they want to make a path through lawn if people want to do it smart, they first lay the lawn and see where people make a natural path. And then they come with the bricks and lay out the path. Yeah, because what you do in theory, and then people will find the most convenient way. And they will still walk, not on the bricked path, but on the way that they find most convenient. And the same approach, I think, should be applied to uh, assisting the civil society or helping society build resilience. We need to first observe and see where people are already taking the steps and then helping them in those sectors instead of coming with a theoretical approach and then trying to fit everyone in there. And with regards to Mahala, again, this, this is something that in theory looks and appears like something authentic and yeah, non-Western, something that uh, people have been used to for centuries. And it, it is indeed this uh, coin with two sides. On the one hand, yes, people depend on each other so much and they help each other so much. You see that hashar approach, yeah, the communal approach to celebrations, but also to tragedies where people come together and help you with burial ceremonies or weddings and births. And that just happens like a well-oiled engine. It's so impressive, actually. Everyone knows their position. Everyone knows exactly what to do and they carry it out and they go through with it. But at the same time, there are other mechanisms, more, more on the institutional level, is when you are dependent on the head of your Mahala committee yeah, to give you some kind of uh, certificates, yeah, all these endless spravkas that you need. And then uh, they start acting like mini kings of these mini kingdoms, because suddenly you are dependent on them, and uh, you know, it's an ideal environment for corruption. Plenty of information from one single podcast discussion. Uh, <laughs> I can't thank enough uh, all of you for uh, the useful information that you shared with us today. Uh, especially, I'd like to thank uh, both Nafisa and uh, uh, Fabien for taking the time to join us in our virtual uh, yurt. It's a pleasure always to see you and hopefully we'll have the chance to see each other in person. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again for inviting me. So that was your monthly chat in the Europe podcast street on EU Central Asia developments. Mm-hmm.